It's Song Talk Radio. Welcome to Song Talk Radio, the show with songwriters talking to other songwriters about the craft of songwriting. We share tips, tools, and techniques, and together we all become better at writing songs. I'm your host, Neil Modi, and with me, my co-host, Phil Emery. How are you doing, Phil? I am doing very well. Thank you, Neil, for uh, for coming back. You were, you were missed sorely uh, last week, so we're sorely? glad that you're back here. Well, thank you very much. I'm glad to be back, and hope your soreness gets better. <laughs> okay. <laughs> We won't go there quite yet. Yes, okay. We, we all know about soreness. That's what we do. Um, and in the in the guest spot, we're happy to have singer songwriter and LA College of Music faculty member Casey Livingston. How are you, Casey? I am so great. Thank you so much for for having me on. It's so nice to meet you guys. It's great to meet you too. Um, thanks for being on the show all the way from uh, Pasadena, California. Yeah. We're working from from west to east here. <laughs> I'm somewhere, in, I'm somewhere in the middle. <laughs> and uh, for everyone else, uh, please send your comments and questions to at Song Talk Radio on Facebook or Instagram or feedback at songtalk.ca for the email and we'll share your thoughts on the show. And please visit songtalk.ca to see the show post for this episode, to find links to resources we mentioned and to download lyric and chord sheets to follow along with the songs that we feature. And um, this will may possibly be our one of our last announcements about our songwriting challenge because <laughs> we are starting to wrap it up. Um, our songwriting challenge for 2023, of course, is to write a song in an unusual mode. And um, if you've been uh, keeping up on the podcast the last uh, several weeks, um, I shared my answer to the challenge a few weeks ago. Phil shared his answer um, to the challenge. We had the um, we had one of our one of our best friends of the podcast, Susan Catania from uh, Berkeley School of Music in Boston um, join us uh, for those discussions so definitely check out those episodes and we've also just dropped our first episode of your songs of the listener songs that you sent to us um, and we still have a few more listener songs um, that we have on file that we're going to go through we're going to be doing another episode um, on listener songs um, in the next couple of weeks and of course we're still welcoming um, our listeners and everybody else from the meetup and stuff to send in your songs um, send an email to feedback at songtalk.ca uh, send this uh, an mp3 uh, a lyric sheet with the chords please because we're talking about modes so we do need the chords um, and give us a little paragraph about how you wrote this song what kind of process you went through and the stumbling blocks and and what you learned um, about writing in, in a mode and, um, and we'll be sure to uh, showcase your song on the podcast all righty and um also, for, for our listeners, especially for those of you who listen to the audio podcast, you may or may not be aware, we also have a YouTube channel. But the interesting thing about the YouTube channel, and you see, you know, you see our beautiful faces on the YouTube, it's always a good thing. <laughs> Well, worth the price. I'm only speaking for Phil here. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, but with the YouTube, on, on the occasional episode, we do keep the, the post-show banter that we go into um, after, after the end credits roll, right? It's yes. a post-credit scene. And, um, and on last week's episode with the, with the, um, with the listener uh, challenge um, answers, uh, Phil and I, after the show ended, 
and after the podcast ends, um, we did get into a little discussion about um, um, different musical instruments, especially orchestral instruments, and why they're in different key signatures. Ah. So, like for example, if you're if you're if you're scoring uh, music for for an orchestra, your your flutes are in C, but then your B flats, your clarinets have to be written in B flat, your trumpets have to be written in B flat, your saxophones have to be written in E flat, and all that stuff. And and we didn't really have a good answer as to why that is a thing. So I Googled it and I found out why that is a thing. And, uh-huh. and, and the reason is actually really, really simple. Instruments in a band have different normal playing ranges, which means they are designed to play at different pitches, right? A violin is up here, yeah. a viola is yeah. in the middle, a cello is down there. So to prevent instruments from playing solely in ledger lines, they're designed for different keys and different clefs, right? So it really has to do with sheet music. It's so, it's so every instrument kind of rests, all the notes rest, you know, somewhere within the lines without too many ledger lines extending beyond the scope of the clef. That's all it is. It's just to make sheet music simpler. Okay. And there you go. Okay. We were, we were, we were coming up with all sorts of crazy reasons. In my view. Okay, I still don't, I still don't get this. Okay. I know this, it sounds simple. So you have the note C. Yeah. And if, like whatever the clarinet has to do to play a C, that should be it. It doesn't matter, like, because in this case, if you want the clarinet to play a C, you actually write something different? Well, you see, but the thing is, the clarinet is not going to play the same C as the flute is playing. The clarinet is a lower-pitched instrument. Right, the, the 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 flute may be playing a C that's the middle, the F A C E of the treble clef, the third the third space in the treble clef, right? The the clarinet may be playing, you know, a a, a G that's lower than that. So if it was in the same clef or the same the same um, key signature, it would the G would actually be three ledger lines below the staff. You know, ledger lines are the extra lines you put underneath the staff to create extra lines on the staff but if you move that that key signature into a b flat then you've only got maybe one ledger line because then that g moves up to like an a or something right like like it's 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 so everything sort of averages inside the clefts without too many extra ledger lines okay i still don't understand why you just can't call (laughs) with the clarinet playing a c you know regardless what the figurings are if it if it sounds like a C, it would be a C. I don't know. Yeah, well, I think they, people they, they, decide on, to be different. Yeah, and 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 this web page I did found did find was um, also says later on the truth is the origin of music that we play today doesn't have an epiphany moment where it was all designed in a single summer. Music has grown and evolved with multiple systems overlapping each other over the course of hundreds of years. Many instruments designs have not changed for hundreds of years, so that's also part of the reason why things differ. Yeah, um, just because of history. But we will put a link in the show post. Interesting. <laughs> this, it is an interesting this article. Thing, yeah. <laughs> it's an interesting thing. I don't even remember how we got into that discussion in the first place. But anyway, <laughs> it was fascinating either way. It was fascinating either way. I mean, I did some scoring back in the day when I was in high school, and it was like, yeah, transposing everywhere for different instruments. My goodness. Yeah. Oodles and oodles of fun. Yes. <laughs> okay. All right. Um. So, KC. Um, now, uh, <laughs> we've got a little a little introduction um, um, that, that you provided to us 
few things are as exciting as being a teenager with talent and a dream. Look, <laughs> excuse me. Located in the heart of the entertainment industry, the Los Angeles College of Music faculty are currently touring and working with music's top stars and can give musical teens a leg up and inside track on the competition. Uh, Casey Livingston is on the songwriting faculty at the Los Angeles College of Music and is inspiring the next generation of songwriters. Welcome to Song Talk Radio, Casey. Thank you so much. Thank you. I can't take credit for the intro. So I realized I would probably never say that's me just inspiring people all day. That's <laughs> very kind of written by someone else, but but thank you. It's a really lovely intro. Yeah. <laughs> Well, for sure. Now, now we know a little bit more about you just um, from 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 your uh, from your publicist and stuff that you had a long and illustrious um, background writing for many popular artists. How did how did you get started in in the music business, and how did you get started as a songwriter? Oh, um, uh, that's nice of you to ask. I yeah, I mean. I Whenever, like, if I have to talk to a group of, uh, or if I should say if I've been invited to talk to a group of up-and-coming songwriters, I always try to kind of describe my path, but everybody's path is so different. So I just always say, this is kind of how it came together uh, for me, but it's, you know, sometimes people have great, you know, more success going the total opposite route. So um, I think I... Well, I, I come from a really musical family. I've got two parents and two step parents, and they're all music teachers, music administrators. My dad's a conductor. So, um, and they all, in spite of how incredible they all are, they always really inspired, um, or, you know, supported me, inspired me to pursue um, what I wanted to do, which is something that was far less studied, you know, which was writing, writing pop music. Um, and, but I've always have been quite shy, just, you know, really started to become kind of obsessed with writing music, but just would only show songs really to my dad and my family and maybe like a friend or two. And I was really shy about singing the songs too, um, which is kind of a big stumbling block to showing the songs. But my dad being a conductor and a music administrator, he was the dean of the music school at, at USC for almost, uh, which is, uh, University of Southern California out here uh, for almost 20 years. And just through his sort of fundraising and trying to bring industry people, because he's always, he's a conductor, but he's always been like a pop music fan and introduced me to some of the stuff I love, you know, the Steely Dan and Doobie Brothers and James Taylors of the world. Um, not that there are more, <laughs> they're all kind of one of a kind. Um, and so he actually happened to have a couple connections in the industry. Um, and I was, you know, I'd, I also got a music ed degree, but really this is my passion. And I was just kind of doing odd jobs, you know, working as a nanny or office assistant, a little frightened to actually try to teach in a classroom and a little frightened to, to show my songs to anyone. Um, but he kept saying to me, you know, you really, you seem to kind of do this all the time with songwriting. It kind of seems to be the main thing that you're you're focused on. Um, can I please take you to to play for some people that I know? And I kept kind of, you know, hesitating. And then uh, eventually he took me to someone who was interested in signing a deal, but that that person had some life changes that made that impossible and we kind of moved on. And the person that he had been wanting to take me to, but I was always terrified to go see was David Foster, um, who I'm sure you guys are are familiar. Really, a lot of 
all other songwriters that I talk to, especially ones mm-hmm. that are my age, it's like all roads lead back to David Foster or Quincy Jones <laughs> for all of us. You know, there's always some connection that's like helped, you know, helped us. So he, so my dad called up David and said, listen, my daughter is a songwriter and he was willing to, to, to have me come in and play. What I didn't know, and I'm glad I didn't know, is that he told my dad that everyone that knows him has an up and coming songwriter in their family or that they know. And, you know, that it kind of caused some, you know, some drama in his life when he didn't immediately want to sign that person to work with them. So he told my dad that if I was terrible, he was going to tell my dad and me right then and there (laughs) in in the meeting. So I'm really glad that I did not know that. Um, and it was, I really thought it was going to be like, he was going to tell me some anecdotes and kind of pat me on the head. And it was an altogether different meeting. He was really incredible. He had me play him some songs at the piano. I'm not a great piano player, even, but not really even a piano player at all. So he had me stand up and he got on the keys and was playing songs. Well, he started, the minute I started playing, he started writing down something on a piece of paper. There's my camera going off there. Um, and I thought he was just writing a to-do list or answering his mail. And I was just thinking as I'm trying to play the song, like this is really worse than I thought it was going to be because he's can't, it's so bad. He can't even be bothered to listen, not knowing he was writing the chords down and they had me stand up and sing. And he called his no longer his wife at the time, but she's also a songwriter, Linda Thompson. And he called her in to come and listen and then within the next few months, my whole life turned around. He had a publishing company and he had me play for Warner Chapel and Peer Music and signed me in a co-venture with his publishing company and Warner Chapel. So it was kind of like one of those stories where you think it's everything is going to really be terrible and it, it and your dream starts to come true. Well, so if you if you can... You, you're looking back on this on this beginning. What do you think specifically David Foster saw or heard? I really don't know because I have a weird nasal androgynous singing voice and just play block chords on the piano. I think we just caught him on a good day. I mean, in that <laughs> same week, my dad also had a connection to Ahmed Erdogan, who was, as you guys remember, yeah, is the founder of Atlantic Records and yeah. and the discoverer of some, you know, some of the world's great musical talents. And we also played for him, which was, I mean, I was so honored. Like, I, far more deserving people should have gotten that opportunity. But he had a very different reaction. He was like, you need more excitement in your songs. And he was he was really polite and kind to us, but clearly didn't really, you know, see the potential uh, at that moment. So I I really don't know. We're just I feel just very lucky that we happened to catch David on that day. And I also really appreciate that he wasn't he didn't hype me up you know he he said you know I've got a publishing company I think you should get a publishing deal I had never heard of a publishing deal at that point um so he didn't sell me a lot of crazy stories about like oh you're going to be this or that he really was just like I believe in you I think I see a lot of potential try writing this song for this movie so he really was um 
you know, supportive in an amazing way in that he offered to sign me and work with me, but also very kind of realistic about how things go. And I think that combo I was really thankful for. Hmm. So you've, um, you know, you've written some hit songs. You've done stuff with the Britney Spears and, and uh, Pussy, uh, Pussycat Dolls and all those. When you're writing for that, what kinds of things are you looking out for in your own songs or what kind of things do you do to, to kind of make it work in that world? Because I think a lot of people would be interested in being able to achieve that kind of result. But so what do you listen for in your own songs or what kind of rules do you use to, to produce these things? Oh my gosh. I mean, I, it's so, it's hard to say because the bulk, when I'm writing the bulk of what just happens I feel like I'm in in a certain kind of zone. It doesn't mean that I'm necessarily writing a great song because it's it's super hit or miss. But there's something that kind of takes over where I feel like I'm not in a conscious zone really thinking about things. I know most other writers that I know, especially ones that do exclusively lyrics or they do lyrics and other things, are writing down a lot of things like the tactile experience is really helpful and seeing words in front of them. I never do that because the minute I can see anything I've written down, I immediately think it's terrible. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not really thinking too much at all. For the most part, I think like the muse for me is always artist voices that I'm excited about. And so when I'm getting into that zone and well, that and also the challenge of, you know, you meet someone that you want to work with. And then I really want, I love the idea of working as a team and establishing, you know, working towards some type of a goal, bringing back a song to them that they're going to be excited about. So those are the things that kind of like set the wheels turning. But usually when I'm writing, I'm kind of in my mind, sort of like an amalgam of, oh, sorry, me. Um, Sorry, a little distraction on the phone there. So I'm usually kind of in my mind sort of like channeling um, an, an artist or multiple artists at once. And I really am glad that I can't at all see myself when I'm doing it because I'm probably doing a lot of weird like faces and body movements. And, you know, like if you're in your kitchen and you're kind of pacing around and you're pretending to be like Mary J. Blige or something like that. Is there something when you've been working with students are there things that you sort of realize that they sort of do a lot, which maybe weakens their songs that that people should think about, you know, watching? You know, I, it's so hard to say. I've met so many people in the industry, um, often on the business side, where maybe they're not necessarily writing songs themselves, or maybe they they used to, but, but stopped doing that. And they can be so good at like troubleshooting songs, like kind of looking at it from the outside. And I'm always, you know, I don't know whether it's just my own wiring or whether it's being a Libra that I can be kind of indecisive and I can always like weigh both sides. Well, you know, when I'm listening to student songs, I might have a strong feeling about something, but I communicate it to them and I say, look, this is just my opinion. This is how I'm reacting to this. But usually what I'm scanning for and something that I know that I do is 
if there's a part, like, obviously, when, you know, you know, this one we write, you know, we're not always writing like the literal truth of what's happening. We're often using metaphors or we're kind of imagining, you know, st- taking a real story as a jumping off point and then exaggerating it or morphing it into something that more people can relate to. So we kind of start there. But there's this concept that I started thinking about after starting teaching called emotional honesty, where it might not be that you are talking about the exact thing that's going on, but the emotion in it has to be genuine somehow. And so when I hear students play their songs, often there will be sections where they're so, it's like what I really 100% believe what they're showing me in the song. And then maybe there'll be like a little moment where I feel like they're disconnecting or they're pulling back or they're unsure. And I know that when I am writing, maybe there's a section I don't love in my own song and I do that too. So that's usually what I'm scanning for. And then obviously like if I feel like maybe they could make better use of this melody, you know, the, the lyric space that they have over the melody to tell more of the story. Maybe I feel like they've been a little redundant. You know, there's like those kind of odds and ends and then restructuring things, Uh, sometimes reharmonizing things too. If they've got something that feels so strong, but it feels like it calls for a chord change. Sometimes I'll, even with my very limited abilities, I'll jump on the keys and kind of say like, oh, what about if we try this? But it's always for the students to decide. You know, I. Sometimes I just, all I'm doing is opening a door of an idea that maybe something different could happen here, but I might not have the right idea, but I might be targeting a place where they can start to look at their own song. And if sometimes they incorporate the change and they love it. And so that's sort of what I'm there for. But if you incorporate the change and you no longer love your song, there's kind of no point in making that change because who else is going to love your song if you don't love it, you know, as you're performing it. So it's I just do the best that I can trying to evaluate the songs. But I'm all, always very cautious about, you know, sometimes the genre, if it's a genre that I don't listen to a lot, I want to be cautious about respecting different kind of norms and things that there might be in that genre that I might not be familiar with and always want to be cautious to try not, not to try and wreck someone's song just because I have the wrong idea about uh, editing it. And I get a lot of feedback from other students in the classroom too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's really exciting to be, oh, oh sorry. <laughs> yeah, I, I, was just, I was just wondering, excuse me, I was just wondering about um, something that Phil was alluding to before, like writing, like what, what to you are the characteristics of a good pop song? Oh, my gosh. I mean, I think, you know, I've thought about it so much, you know, and I never really thought about it at all, actually, before I started teaching. Yeah. So it's really been like the last 10 years. It's like, oh, like, why do I do this? And what, you know, and really, I guess the only thing that I've found has been like the sort of overarching, like this always has to be true in some capacity is that emotional honesty thing. And I, I tell students like, you know, when I was 18, 19 and Alanis Morissette was coming out, you know, I, you know, I was listening to the songs like, oh, these are really catchy. But then I would, you know, I would critique, you know, like, oh, She's talking about ironic, but that's not really ironic. You know, I thought I knew everything. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> you you weren't wrong. <laughs> but 
so wrong about most things. I was like, why can't we go back to the 70s? That's when the music was last good. You know, and then my whole career has been meeting the songwriters. And so, you know, you hear a novelty song. I'm sure you guys have found this too. You hear a song that would be categorized as a novelty song that's a hit song. And a lot, what I, I know, I guess I never have said like, oh, they're just trying to be cheesy. Because who I don't know the person that wrote it. So, you know, who, who am I to say? But I hear a lot of other people saying like, oh, they're selling out. They're trying to be too pop. They're trying to be too this. And I've so often found now, you know, now that if a song comes out that has a gimmick to it or something where people would say like, oh, this is kind of superficial, often I'll have, I'll know someone who's participated in it and I'll be able to recognize like, oh, I think they were talking about this. You know, there's always someone in the mix. It might not be everyone, but someone in the mix that's writing one of those songs that could be categorized as, as more superficial. That's really feeling it. They're not trying to trick anybody like this is their emotional honesty. So I've heard a lot of people say, okay, if you're going to write songs, it's got to have this. And then the next day, someone else will give an emphatic talk about songwriting. It's got to have this. And it's the opposite of what the last person said. I feel like I have no knowledge about what really makes a a good song. But I think that thing where somebody who's creating some of the material in the song being really connected into their emotions seems to be pretty crucial. And of course, other people then can edit it. Most of the times, if I'm, you know, really emoting as I'm writing, there's a lot of editing that happens before it kind of is ready for the world in a capacity. So, but that, you know, kind of diamond in the rough seems to be the emotional connection I found. Yeah, we we have we have another frequent um, guest on on our show, uh, Blair Packham, who's he was he was in a band called the Jitters, um, Canadian uh, rock band back in the eighties and stuff. And he he teaches songwriting as well. And he he tends to say the same thing that you know mm. it, it does depend a lot on on genre and and all these other things. But at the end of the day, if he emotionally connects with the song, then that's what really counts as a as a listener. Of course, you can be fooled. You know, sometimes somebody yeah. like is isn't really feeling it, but they're you know because some people you know, the more cerebral things about it, like the challenge, trying to be really intentional, sometimes that's inspiring to them too. So sometimes students, you know, will play a song and I'm like trying to blink back tears because I have to talk about it Mm -hmm. (laughs) afterwards, you know, and I, it's kind of an interesting, you know, like I almost feel like I don't deserve, I'm getting emotional just thinking about it. I feel like I don't really deserve the honor of being at this place with them where they're just really starting in their careers and these are the songs that are you know that that they're going to be the most excited about that are going to propel them to the next thing it's really it's can when I react to the songs it can be both a mix of like really being moved by the song but being in awe of what they can do and they're so young usually students you know remembering myself at that age just like racing home to watch Scooby-Doo reruns and you know (laughs) Eating, uh, eating marshmallows and peanut butter cups. So, I, like, I get, I get really emotional about about what they can do, and then sometimes they'll say, "Oh, that didn't actually happen at all. Like, n- none of that is true." Yeah. But I, or you know, sometimes there can be a lot of emotion that's just kind of swirling within us, and the song is just a place where we can pour all of it 
even if nothing literal is like what they're actually experiencing, I feel like there is still that emotional connection, even if the subject matter is totally different to their life. Yeah, I mean, there's something that I've heard more recently actually spelled out, even though I kind of know what 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 it meant already. But just to just to sort of just to sort of spell it out, the difference between, like you say, emotional truth, the different the difference between truth and being factual. Oh, that's a great distinction. I never thought about. Hey, I never thought about it like that. But I love that factual versus truth. That's a, a great way to explain it. Because they, because they always say, like, if you want to be specific in your song about about details, place, and time, and texture, and and what things sounded like or looked like, or you know, visual imagery and and things like that, they don't necessarily have to be literal factual the way that it happened it could be there's there's always this balance point about how how distanced you are from your subject matter you're not you're not telling a you're not writing a novel right you're not being quite literal about what what it is and you're not being completely abstract about it either and masking it all in metaphor but there's a balance point in there somewhere where you're you're right expressing emotional truth without being super specific about the the story or the content yeah and i think what you're getting at too like i think contrast within songs can be something Mm -hmm. that can be really effective like having you know like you were saying some things that are metaphor and then other things that's very tangible person to person kind of language um some things that are kind of vague enough that everyone can relate to them. And then some details that are so specific that they're unforgettable. Like those kind of contrasting elements in songs, Uh, melodies, sections of melodies that are like almost nursery rhymey. They're so easy to sing with, you know, and then later in the song, maybe you have one that would be really challenging to sing like that kind of contrast seems to work really nicely too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, contrast is a great way of, of of denoting different you know sections of your songs as well. So it's just one of the tools that songwriters can you know can use. Let's talk about um, stick with you. Um, by the uh, can you let's talk about the writing of that. What was that like? Yeah, well, it's, I always think it's so funny because, you know, everything that I was writing in high school and college, pretty much all the songs that I played for David Foster that day, they're all like quirky, kind of in my own feeling like angsty songs about unrequited love and bittersweet mm. uh, feelings. I love that cattail I'm seeing mm. <laughs> over there with you, Phil. Um, but uh, I've got a buddy over there in the studio. Oh, oh Hobbs, did you say? Yes, Hobbs the cat. It's amazing. That's Hobbs. so adorable. Um, <laughs> oh, very sweet. Um, I, everyone in my family is allergic to cats, so I'm always excited oh, to see them in any capacity. I, I don't think I am, but like dad, stepdad, all are. <laughs> uh, yeah, so sorry. <laughs> back, back to songwriting. Um uh, yeah, so, you know, I got all these songs that I really emoting the most where, you know, artists that have been uses for me have been like Bonnie Raitt and kind of like artists in that in that genre of kind of bluesy and like story songs. And then the weird sort of randomness of what songs of ours are chosen that, 
you know, maybe have more exposure or some exposure. Often, and I find this with other songwriters too, they're not always representative of what we think is our style. So like I kind of have a craggy voice. I like to sing low. And so here's this weird pop song that the melody is so high. Like it's not a song that I walk around singing stick with you a lot just because the melody is so high. So it's really out of you know, especially the chorus melody is really outside of like what, what's comfortable for me. But you just, you know, that's the thing with the emotional honesty is you're something just takes you over and you're not really thinking about like, is this a song I'm going to want to keep on singing? It just kind of kind of happens. So, yeah. So as far as the writing, I, two of the first people that I met in the industry were uh, Franny Goldie, who's a, a very much more successful than me a songwriter. Um, an entrepreneur uh, of late, and then um, a wonderful, lovely writer-producer named Robert Palmer. Not the Robert Palmer that was also an artist that people might be familiar with from like 80s, 90s, a different mm -hmm. one, who unfortunately has since passed away. Um, and every time Robert picked up his guitar to play, it was just magic for me. Like melodies would come to me and ideas. Um, so he was one of the first people I collaborated with and then I also was collaborating a lot with Franny. She was signed to Warner Chapel, as was I. And I, it was my mission to get them together. I was like, these two people I love working with and, you know, scheduling difficulties and everything. But finally it happened and we got together and we wrote maybe one of the worst songs in the history of songwriting. That was like a pop <laughs> rock song. I don't remember it much. It took us like 11 sessions and then we tried to demo it. It just, nothing was working. And I've heard from other people that sometimes it's when you kind of capitulate, when you just kind of, I'm giving up on whatever this is, whatever's happening is when something comes to you because mm -hmm. the stakes are suddenly not so high and you feel mm -hmm. this like freedom yeah. to just, and also the escape, like escaping from something where you don't feel like you're connecting with your, your authentic voice and muse. So after we finally finished the demo and put the nail in that coffin, like forever, um, our Franny, who always was just an amazing go-getter, said, you know, why don't we try messing around with another idea? And Robert very kindly got it out his guitar. And I was so sort of, we all were just exhausted. But at a certain point, and Franny always, I'm always shy. So I'm working inside my own head. And, but Franny was always singing a lot of melodies because I think she's more comfortable in her skin and just throwing things out there. And I couldn't, you know, when I'm collaborating and someone's doing that, I'm trying to catch on to the tail end or some piece of what they're doing and bring something to it. And that just wasn't happening. It wasn't happening. And suddenly this melody just jumped into my, my mind and it ended up being the first melody. And as I'm quite a shy person, I often, when I'm collaborating, do a lot of my part of it in my own space so I kind of we kind of walked away we all just were so tired at that point but we had the first melody and then I went home and it was just one of those magical moments where a lot of the song just came to me as I was like you know brushing my teeth or doing other weird things and then I called up Robert later and sang him like a snippet of the hook and he was like there's something to this so we got back together I had kind of adjusted some chords and kind of showed him what I had and then we began to edit it and demo it and I don't know like I you can often have a special feeling about a song that goes goes nowhere like you're the only one that ever knows about it but in this case I don't know I had a really 
there was something it felt like a good luck charm and i brought the cd of it you know like on a trip with me i wasn't going to play it for anyone but it just felt like a good luck charm and there was that group the pussycat dolls but they had already finished their record franny had been really in communication with the team that was kind of working on that record and i even you know we even got together with another writer who had a song on the record and i was like that song is way too good like there's no way we're getting on that record, even though I'm always optimistic and want to try. And Franny actually walked the song over to Ron Fair, who was one of the producers of the record. And she said he basically stopped the presses on the record and they and they recorded it. It became their second single. So that's probably a very that's probably too much detail. Wow. No, <laughs> it's perfect. For. But, um, oh my gosh. It just, you know, I like to do a lot of what I do kind of inside a, a, my own cave, you know, like not going out there and schmoozing and playing things, but that's where that combination of personalities can sometimes work really well. Someone who is wired for business and who can do both the creative and business, um, kind of helping out with that. And, you know, that's a, a great foil to what I do, which is basically writing songs for the inside of my shower. <laughs> right. <laughs> Let's take a listen and then we'll uh, uh, talk a bit more. Sound good? Sounds good. Hanging around, they ain't bringing us 
a few years isn't it the song <laughs> it really is yeah. yeah it's interesting that the um the chorus doesn't change musical centers it's a, yeah it's the same chords i think in the, as in the verse i believe it, yeah and actually i so that was an adjustment to the original progression that we started working on and interestingly enough all these years later because i always thought like I know that progression from somewhere uh you know for rolling down you know four three two mm. one uh, you know basically uh and then with the boom 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 at the end I was like why do I know that progression and later I discovered it was a song I mean obviously you know lots of songs might use that progression but it was a song actually that David Foster had co co-written I didn't even know it at the time that that was a you know, something that he had worked on, but it was from that song. And I, I just didn't realize it at the time, but that once I kind of got the idea for that progression adjustment, I was like really, really hooked on it. But actually in the second chorus, it does make an alteration to the progression. And that's one of the things that was edited, you know, when I originally was working on it, um, I can't remember if I saved that progression alteration for the very end, but I think it was decided to bring it in a little bit sooner. So, and I, that's another, I guess, thing um, to think about with songwriting, not always, but, you know, human beings seem to love hearing a melody and then hearing it repeated over a different progression. Hmm. It's almost hmm. like consciously satisfying to us. I'm sure you guys are aware of that too, where, you're hearing a, a different thing happening underneath and the same melody, you know, yeah. it's because it, we get the predictability of that melody that we've already heard, but something kind of that defies our predictability. And so that's another thing, you know, for new songwriters to keep in mind. If you feel like you really love the melody, you want to keep hearing it, but you want to add something to kind of keep people on their toes, trying to look for chord substitutions underneath the melody is kind of a fun thing to do. Hmm. That's a great tip. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Because because this song, it, you know, it it it's not um, it's not a traditional song in, in in the sense of a story that carries you through. It's kind of you know one one idea, and it's kind of unified in 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 those in those chord choices and and stuff like that. Like the melody really picks up in the chorus. Of course, it's super catchy. Um, the witch you the the, the 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 way they're singing the witch you is kind of a catchy yeah. little thing, right? It's not with you, which like a we, folk singer might sing. Which we talked but, about before because we had uh, one of the discussions we've had on the show is. Some people are say that, you know, you shouldn't sing something the way you wouldn't speak it. Right. But I think little things like that actually stick in your ear. Yeah. 
I really don't know where that came from. I mean, in my mind, I knew that Franny knew about the Pussycat Dolls opportunity, but my sort of, you know, thing I was always targeting was like Mary J. Blige is just always a voice that I loved. Mm. And so she really was a muse for a lot of writing. So in my mind, I think working on that, I was aware of that we could pitch the song to them. I was so, so thankful that they recorded it because obviously it made a huge change to to my life that they did but i think mary j was really the the muse for it that probably sounds mm. a little funny to say, I should say mary j blige was the muse for was the muse for writing it and so i don't know why in my mind you know as i was just kind of in that zone and just like trying to channel her why on earth i thought that you know but again i think i wasn't thinking i think i was just wanting you know i was kind of like it's like sort of telling my own story, own emotional truth, but hoping that she would be sort of the storyteller, you know, to mm-hmm. the world. And I've ne- never have gotten a song on on one of her albums, but sometimes that's just the conduit to to getting your story out there. What, what, what is that relationship like with with the artist? Like, what if you 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 finished song, or you co-write it with with somebody, and you finish the song, and then you just hand it off to the artist, and whatever they're going to do with it, they can do with it. It, it no matter if they tweak a lyric, even or a pronunciation, or put the emphasis <laughs> on the wrong syllable, or something like that. Like, did you do? Do they yes. come to you for feedback <laughs> yeah. on that, or is that something that once once yes. it's handed off, it's handed off? Yeah, I mean, I think it kind of depends on your relationship with like the team of that artist. It depends on your, you know, the status that you have in the industry. Um, and, and I totally get that. Like, well, you know, when you write something, you think, well, this is how it goes and this is how everyone else will sing it. And, you know, I think if something becomes a hit, then people become aware of exactly how to sing it. All of those infinitesimal, you know, variations and, you know, entering and exiting a note and dynamics and all of that but when it's a demo and it's really an unknown song the singer and however they decide to execute it kind of that's what tells the world how the song goes Mm -hmm. and so I often in my mind have you know and well and then sometimes there's a middle person which would be the demo singer you know so and Mm. because of you know the all of the advancements in technology, you know, more recently I'd been able to sing quite a lot of the demos, you know, there's compression and auto-tune and all that stuff that helps a weird voice like mine be able to communicate the song. But, you know, if you're not singing the demo, you've got a lot of steps in between, you know, the song coming from you and getting out to the world. And so it's really up to the vocalist, the producer, how much the producer is kind of giving tips and, and guiding the vocalist. So um, for the most part, I haven't necessarily been in the room when the song is getting recorded. Sometimes that's kind of a sacred relationship between the vocal producer or, or the producer might be also producing vocals and the artist. And they don't want so many things kind of interfering with that connection other times producer have said producers have said to me like please come like I can't do this alone like come and try to help I don't know how helpful I am with vocal producing because I tend to start getting anxious like oh you know they're not getting the song they don't like it you know (laughs) all of that kind of stuff but yeah we when we write the songs we have a lot of plans for how they're going to go and I mean, we thought a rapper would be featured on Stick With You on the Bridge. Like, it's just, it's so, it's so different, you know, than, than how you imagine it. So yeah, it's a, it's a lot of cooks kind of coming into the kitchen and are almost like a game of telephone sometimes that it can end up very different. A lot of times the finished product, I'm like, oh, I love how they did this. I never would have thought of that. 
you know, the vocalist. Other times I'm like, oh, I wish they would have done this run a little closer to how we had wanted it. Um, and yeah, you just, you never know what you're going to get. But I think as a writer, you have in your mind the demo version, you know, like it almost feels sometimes like an entirely different song. And then the artist version of it, which, you know, can be, can have some things that are disappointing or a lot of things that you're so glad they made that choice because they improved mm. it a lot. Yeah, of course. Of course. Cool. Yeah, no, it's it's fascinating to sort of hear and, and the, the bridge of that song is quite neat as well. Because yeah. oh, thanks. It's yeah, like it's, if you thought you were already singing high, put on your seatbelt. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Gonna get higher. Yeah. That, 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 that's really another thing that I've, that I've become acutely aware of in the, in the more recent past is that the bridge can actually be the high high energy point of a song, higher than the chorus. Right, like you think the chorus yeah. notches it up, and then when the bridge notch, notches up even further, that's often a cool thing to do. Yeah, yeah, and I think I mean people can sometimes it is oh, sorry I'm hearing a little noise in the background here. Sorry, um, yeah, it it can be exciting. I was actually just talking in a I was substituting for a class yesterday, and one of the students said like the bridge is always my favorite part. And I never really thought about that, but I think there are probably a lot mm -hmm. of songs where the bridge is my favorite part too. Oh, yeah. It's almost yeah. like, you know, you already were really satisfied with what you were having. And then someone was like, by the way, there's two desserts, you know, or something like that. <laughs> yeah, You're exactly. like, what? It's going to be a raspberry gelato and a chocolate souffle like you mm -hmm. know you're just you're not expecting that to happen but i mean they can be deal breakers for the song too but but the temptation is to always like let's raise the stakes let's go you know into the stratosphere when sometimes depending on the rest of the song that's surrounding it maybe more what's called for is something more subdued or a reiteration of the pre-chorus mm -hmm. or something like that so it's you know it's tempting to want to go there, but if it doesn't feel like it's you're loving it with your own song or it's resonating with other people, you can always try going the opposite direction. Like maybe it should be a breakdown right here. You know, like you just you, you never yeah. know what's going to be called for unless you kind of listen to it in context. Yeah, of course. It always depends on the on, on the context. And this is not to say that every bridge needs to be the highest energy point of the song. It could be the lowest or it could be somewhere in the middle. It doesn't, yeah. you know, it really depends on what yeah. the song wants. I, I find for myself, it's usually that that is much more of a gut instinct kind of decision to make. I'm like, yeah, this bridge just feels like it needs to be bigger. Or this bridge just feels like it needs <laughs> yes, to be diminished. Yeah. For me <laughs> bridges, too. <laughs> bridges yeah. are always the most funnest thing to, uh, to write for me. They're my favorite part. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Interestingly, no. And 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 they say they. I've heard this. I think maybe Rick Beato on YouTube had said this or something. Somebody said this. Said that, that a lot of modern modern pop songs these days are loop number one chords mm -hmm. repeated over and over again. And it's like it's not even verse chorus verse chorus. It's like chorus 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 chorus. No bridge. Yeah. And, <laughs> and then a couple more choruses. <laughs> And that's kind of it. Like it's just hook after hook after hook after hook. And and but but the but the salient point was that there there are no bridges like we used to have bridges anymore in pop songs. Or very few. Yeah. No, I'm saying no, but yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I think I mean genre has definitely like changed that too, because like you have EDM music for example song is going to be an instrumental you know where like often if the dj is the artist that's kind of like really i mean they're shining throughout the whole song and production but that's kind of their moment you know 
to, to really shine. And so if you're navigating the structure of the song, okay, what, how do we have to shift things around, you know? So you might have mm -hmm. like a sung verse and then a chorus and then a whole instrumental part. And so even though the instrumental part, you know, might be on the same chord progression that you've been hearing, it's still kind of occupying the information space that we have about the song. And mm -hmm. sometimes we just can't hold more information, you know, and it, it's, it's hard too, because I know that sometimes you really want to tell more of the story in a bridge, but when you do check the context, it's like, no, actually we need to hear something again that we've already heard. Cause we just, we can't, if we get that new information, we're going to be confused about what the point of the song is. Yeah. You know, what the so, yeah, I mean, that's after you get all the material of the song out, that's an equally challenging battle is the structure and how, you know, the transitions, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. For sure. For sure. I found of late, actually, that, that, you know, the phenomenon of writing top line to track. So often you're doing that, you know, you might be apart from the person that's created the track, but often you might be in the room together. So maybe a producer has prepared some tracks and you might be coming up with ideas, but you're in the studio together. It's, you know, maybe the last 10, 15 years or so, it's often the case that if you get a couple verses and chorus choruses, you might just start recording it because that way you really get such an official context for the bridge. Mm. And, you know, mm -hmm. I feel kind of torn about it. In some cases, I feel like, oh, you know, maybe you miss something because you're so you're jumping into to writing or to recording, you know, and and getting an actual like demo started before you've written the bridge. You might not think of a bridge, but other times it kind of like saves us from our own indulgence, you know. <laughs> it says, true. okay, I don't really want well one one thing that was told to me, this was, you know, like really early on in things and my collaborating, I was really just so passionate about this one part that I wanted to have, at, at, you know, on part of the chorus or something. And it was really just like basically a harmony part. And one collaborator said to me, you know, that kind of sounds like the part, you know, that you would like sing in your car on your own while you're listening to the song. <laughs> I was like, yeah. okay, it's really... <laughs> kind of diplomatic way of saying yeah. that this part is not going in the song. But, you know, yeah. it's important to bring that passion to it, even if you don't win every battle about what the idea is going to be. No, yeah. it's always, you know, if it doesn't make it in one song, you can always file it away and use it in another song. <laughs> yes, that has ha definitely happened. Yeah, sometimes people are none the wiser that you're like, okay, I'm going to store this away for later. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, and uh, speaking of storing things away for later, I fear that is all the time we have on the show. Uh, this has been Song Talk Radio. Special thanks uh, to Casey Livingston. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you so much for sharing uh, your stories awesome and your process with us. That was that was that was some pretty cool stuff. Um, and where, where can us just uh, find out find out more about you? Oh, sorry. Where can our listeners find out more about you? Sorry. Yes. Well, I, I do have a Wikipedia page that just magically appeared online at some point. Some of the information in there might you might need to fact check and double check, but uh, that would be a good place. Maybe all music, um, and then the LACM website, of course. Okay, we should be sure to send our listeners there. Um, and we want to hear from you, our listeners. So please send in your comments on Facebook or Instagram to at Song Talk Radio, or send us an email feedback at songtalk.ca. 
Also, be sure to check out our YouTube channel for live performance videos and full episodes and subscribe today to the Song Talk Radio podcast on your favorite podcast provider. And you can find links to all the products, books and web services we mentioned on Song Talk Radio on our resources page on the website. And please join us at our next monthly Song Talk meetup, whether you're in Toronto for our in-person meetups or anywhere in the world for our online meetups. It's free to join on meetup.com and free to attend. Bring a song and a lyric sheet and get constructive feedback from other songwriters. Stop by songtalk.ca for the link. You can follow me at neilmody.com. You can follow Phil at philemory.ca. And uh, Casey, are you? Uh, do you have a social media channel you'd like our listeners to visit you on? I'm so terrible at that. I think I have a Facebook page. <laughs> That's about it. <laughs> All right. Let's see if we can dig that up. The old-fashioned Facebook. <laughs> and be sure to stop by the website, songtalk.ca, to browse past shows and find out how you can be a guest. Thanks for tuning in, and keep, keep on writing. writing. <laughs> Good night, everyone. Keep those cards and letters coming. <laughs>